This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning, Anchor. Great to see you this morning. My name's Mitch, if I haven't met you. I'm from the Burwood Gospel Community. Um, Yeah, there's one of them down the front. That's good. Um, Great to see you. Um, I'm super excited to be getting into the Word this morning, and I'm especially excited because we get to be starting this series called The Deceiver, looking at the story of Jacob. And before we jump in, just a quick shout out to Sam Beckman, who made that video. Let's give Sam Beckman a hand, because that was amazing. Thank you, Sam. I'm not sure if he's here or where he is, but thank you. And also just to thank you to, to Coons as well, who's done the, the artwork for this series, which is also amazing. So thank you so much to Coons as well. Yeah, awesome. So we're starting the series uh, called The Deceiver. So during the week, that had me thinking about uh, the idea of deception. Um, so I was thinking about deception, and as I thought about that, uh, what came to mind was an article that I read recently about a study that was done in Australia last year about the most trusted and least trusted professions in Australia. So there was a big survey done about you know, which professions people trust and which ones people don't. And right at the top of the list for the most trusted professions are kind of the ones you'd expect to be there. So there was teachers and nurses and doctors are all at the top of the list because you know, these are the people that we trust with our lives and that we trust with our children. So it makes sense that they'd be at the top. Uh, and then right down at the bottom, there were also a bunch of uh, probably predictable answers as well. So right near the bottom, there was our federal and state politicians. Uh, no one trusts our politicians. Uh, also near the bottom was real estate agents and people that work in sales. They were also at the bottom. But there was one in particular that was at the very bottom, and this one's been at the bottom every single year since this survey began in 1976. So that's like 40 years of coming in last place. And for this particular profession, only 4% of all Australians think that you can have a personal ethic of honour and honesty and work in this profession. And that profession is car salesmen. So no one thinks, no Australian thinks that you can be a good person and value honesty and be a car salesman. So I'm really sorry if there's any car salesman here today. Um, I'm sure you'll be in the 4% though, so don't worry about that. But the reason, as I read through these articles, uh, read through this article about why these professions are trusted or not trusted was because uh, people think that all the ones at the bottom of the list generally are known for being deceptive and for being manipulative and for doing whatever it takes to get whatever they want, regardless of the people that they're serving. That's why we don't trust these professions, because they're all deceptive and manipulative. And we all grew up being told that being deceptive and being manipulative and cheating people is wrong. And that's what we all believe, and we think that, you know, that's really important. We think we place a a high value on being trustworthy, and we place uh, a high value on transparency and honesty. So naturally, we don't trust people that are deceptive. I think this has been the case throughout almost, you know, every culture throughout the history of the world, and it's certainly true of the ancient Near Eastern culture where Israel originated. So as we read this story in Genesis, as we read about the story of Jacob, who is one of Israel's you know, patriarchs, one of the heroes of the the Jewish faith and of the Christian faith, we read his story and his story is just filled with deception and it's filled with manipulation and it's filled with cheating others for his own gain. So we've got to ask this question, how is that okay? How is it okay that Jacob can be so deceptive and so manipulative and still be one of the heroes of our faith? So that's what we're going to be looking at as we embark on this series, as we look through uh, the whole story of Jacob in Genesis, starting in chapter 25. And that's the question we're going to be trying to answer over this series, and particularly today as well. But I'm going to pray for us, and we need God's help if we're going to understand these things. So I'm going to pray. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. 
Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God who chose to reveal himself to us. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that you care about us enough to reveal uh, not only yourself but your son to us, Lord, and we ask that you do that today, Lord. We ask that you be working powerfully by your Holy Spirit, Lord, be transforming us and changing us and conforming us more to the image of Jesus. It's his, his name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're doing the, the story of, of Jacob. And uh, for those of us who were here last year, we actually did a series called The Wanderer, looking at the life of Abraham, who's kind of the first of the patriarchs that's given a lot of airtime in Genesis. And then Jacob's story comes next. And then next year, we're going to be doing a series called The Dreamer, looking at the third patriarch given lots of time in Genesis, uh, Joseph. So we're in the middle at the moment. And if we're going to understand the story of Jacob, it's really important that we understand the story of Abraham. So I'm just going to give a quick summary of Abraham's story. And it starts in Genesis 12, so it should be on the screen behind me, starting at Genesis 12. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so, Abraham receives this call of God. He receives this promise that he'll be a great nation and that through his descendants, the whole earth would be blessed. And he gets told to go and then he leaves without even knowing where he's going. Abraham takes this step of faith and he trusts God. And throughout this whole life of Abraham, throughout his whole story, we get this picture of someone who had received the promises of God but hadn't yet seen them realized, but still steps out in faith. And his faithfulness and believing God is credited to him as righteousness, we're told. And for so long, he's stepping out in faith and trusting God despite not seeing these promises realized and despite not being given a son, despite being told that he was going to be a great nation, that his descendants would bless the whole earth. And so God uh, blesses Abraham and he performs a miracle and he opens Sarah's womb and she has a child and that name, the child's name is Isaac. And when Abraham is 100 years old, he finally starts to see the fulfillment of God's promise to him by giving him a son and a way of carrying out his descendants to bless the whole earth. And so the story of Abraham is one of receiving God's promises and stepping out in faith before seeing them realized. And then eventually Isaac gets born and Genesis doesn't really give Isaac much time at all. He only gets a couple of chapters and we move straight into the story of Jacob, his son. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So I'm going to read from Genesis 25, the first few verses. And it says, This is the account of the family line of Abraham, Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padanaram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And so we get the beginning of the story of Jacob and Esau, but just like any story, it needs to have great character development if it's going to be a compelling story, right? Like any movie that we watch or any book that we read needs to have excellent, compelling characters that grow and develop over time. And it's so important that we you know, are there for the start when we get introduced to these characters. I've got a mate named Josh. He's one of my best mates. And me and Josh always go to the movies together. And particularly, we always go and see all the, the Marvel movies because we love superhero and we love Marvel particularly. So it's like 20 movies we've gone to see now. Um, but what happens every single time we go to the movies together is that Josh really hates watching all the, all the trailers and all the ads and stuff beforehand. So he tries to plan it so we get there right when the actual movie starts. So if our ticket says 
6.30, he'll aim to be there at like 7, guessing exactly when the movie's going to start, which frustrates me to know it. And he's, you know, he's known for being, well, not known for being the most punctual guy at the best of times. So when we get to these movies, we, you know, inevitably what happens is we'll get there a little bit late and then we'll have to do that weird like shuffle dance across everyone in the, in the movies, apologizing, saying, oh, sorry, sorry, excuse me, sorry, sorry. And Errol's frustrated and annoyed at us because we're walking all over them. And we get in there and we've missed the start of the movie. So what happens every time is we spend, you know, the first like half an hour, 45 minutes trying to catch up on what's happening, trying to figure out what's going on. Because so often, especially with the Marvel movies, the opening scene is so significant if you're going to understand the rest of the plot. Often, that's when the characters are introduced and that's when we kind of learn who they are. So, so often we need to be there if we're going to know what's going on. That's the same with this story. The beginning of Jacob and Esau's story, the story of their birth, is so foundational for understanding the rest of their story. But not only their story, it's foundational for understanding the rest of the story of Israel and the Bible. So these opening verses are super significant for us if we're going to understand what's going on. And so it starts with us being told that Isaac marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. And then just like Sarah, Rebekah is also barren. And so we're supposed to be asking the question here as the, as the reader of Genesis, how is God's covenant promise going to be fulfilled? We took, it took so long for Abraham to get given a son, and now he has a son and his wife is also barren. So how is God going to continue the line of Abraham? That's the question we're supposed to be asking. And then we're told what happens. And Isaac prays to the Lord and Rebekah conceives. And in the space of one verse, the problem is solved. Isaac prays, Rebekah conceives. Awesome. God's promise can continue. Such a contrast to the Abraham story where for years and years and chapters and chapters and chapters, we're asking, how is God going to do this? And then in this case, we just see Isaac prays, answered, Rebekah is pregnant. But what we're not told is about what we need to kind of read between the lines here. If you look uh, in Genesis, you see that Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40 years old. And then a couple of verses later, we're told that when the boys were born, he was 60. So what we're not told about here in the space of one verse is the, the 20 years of persistent, devoted prayer of Isaac to the Lord, trusting that he would provide. 20 years of prayer saying, God, please provide a son. Skipped over in one verse, showing how faithful Isaac is in this scenario. But Rebecca, she does conceive, she becomes pregnant. And then we continue the story in verse 22. And it says, The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Rebekah falls pregnant, and her pregnancy is extremely painful. And we're told that you know, the, the children struggle together. They jostle at each other within her. Now, I'm going to tell you something about me that you may not know, and that is that I've actually never been pregnant. Um, I've never been pregnant, but I imagine that being pregnant is really uncomfortable, right? Having another whole person growing inside of you can't be the most comfortable experience. I'm sure all the mothers can confirm that, even though I can't. Um, but what I imagine would be more uncomfortable than having you know, one child within you is having two children within you. That would be even more uncomfortable. And what would be even worse than that is having two children within you that are jostling with each other and struggling against each other. And what's interesting is that our translation probably doesn't even give us kind of the full extent of what's happening here. I've been told that a more accurate translation of what's happening here is that the children smashed against each other in her womb. 
These children are smashing against each other in her womb. How painful would that be? And obviously it is painful and she's struggling because then she says, why is this happening to me? She goes to the Lord and asks, why is this happening? And a more literal translation of that is, why do I live? Like, why do I live? She's in so much pain as these children are smashing against each other. And God answers her and he says, there are two nations within your womb and they'll be fighting against each other. And if we fast forward through the story of Genesis and through the history of Israel, we see that what God says here is actually true. Jacob and Esau are born and they grow up. And a few chapters later, I'm giving you a bit of a spoiler alert for a few weeks' time, Jacob gets his name changed and his name is changed to Israel. And he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And Esau also grows up and he becomes the father of another nation and that nation is Edom. And throughout all of Israel's history, Israel and Edom are fighting against each other, struggling against each other constantly. If you fast forward in the the story of the Israelite faith, Moses helps, you know, God through Moses rescues rescues the, the Israelites from Egypt and they escape Pharaoh and then they're wandering around in the wilderness for ages trying to find the promised land. And they get to this point in the book of Numbers in in chapter 20 where they're going to the promised land and they have to travel through the land of Edom. And when they get to the border of Edom, the Edomites say, no, we won't let you go through this land and if you take one more step, we'll put you to the sword. So Israel have to go all the way around, a long way around the nation of Edom to get to the promised land. And then if you fast forward even further forward in Israel's history, as the nation of Babylon comes to take away the remnant of Judah into exile, guess who's there helping them take Israel into exile? Edom. Throughout, throughout the whole history of Israel, Edom and Israel are fighting against each other, and it all begins right here in Rebekah's womb, as Jacob and Esau are battling against each other within the womb. But the most significant thing about what God says to Rebekah here is that the older will serve the younger. Now, it's so easy for us to kind of just read over that the first time and just not think much of it. The older will serve the younger. Okay, a bit unusual. Let's read on. But this is so significant. In the ancient Near East culture around where Israel is, the older sibling would always rule over the younger sibling. The firstborn would always rule over the younger. And the younger would, would never, would never, absolutely never rule over the older sibling. And this kind of reminds me a little bit about my family, because I'm, the, the I'm one of two siblings. My mum and dad just had me and my sister, and I'm younger than her by two years. But despite being younger, I'm just objectively my grandmother's favourite. So there's just, there's just no doubt about the fact that my grandma loves me more than my sister. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a little brother, so it's in my nature to bait my older sister. Um, so I used to always do this. I used to always annoy her and bait her by being like, hey, grandma loves me more than you, so it doesn't matter what you say. Um, constantly, I would be baiting her all the time as much as I could. And then my parents used to get really annoyed at me and saying, you know, you can't do that. Stop baiting your sister. It's so annoying. She's so angry at you. And she would get really annoyed. But over the years, it's just become so obvious that it's true that no one even debates it anymore. Um, we had a Christmas a, a couple of a years ago, and um, we were... <laughs> we were sitting around in a, in a small group and it was me and my sister and my dad and my grandmother and me and my dad were just bantering a little bit and in the banter I, I called him by his first name uh, which is Gordon and I called him Gordon and my grandma thought that was very disrespectful um, so she was just like oh Mitch that's a bit cheeky you shouldn't have said that and then about one minute later my sister was in the conversation did exactly the same thing my grandma just took a step back and had her arms folded like this and she's like oh this is why we don't have daughters. Um, she got very upset, um, and my sister got very upset. And my dad heard it, I heard it, my mother heard it, everyone heard it. Ended the debate once and for all. Um, but the reason that my grandmother loves me more than my sister 
is because she's a very traditional old lady, and to her, it's very important that the family name gets carried on. And, you know, for her, in her eyes, if my sister was to get married one day, and she'd most likely change her name, and then if she was to have kids, they wouldn't share the same name, whereas if I have kids, they'll have my last name. It's very important to my grandma, not very important to anyone else. Um, but that's the reason that I'm her favorite. And I think, it's, I think it's funny because, you know, in our culture, that's extremely unfair, right? I recognize how unfair this is. I've done nothing at all to earn my grandmother's favor, but yet she still loves me more than my sister. All because of the name being carried on, even though I'm not the firstborn. But I want us, what I want us to understand here and imagine is that in the ancient Near East culture, it's absolutely unheard of that the secondborn would receive the favor over the firstborn. Absolutely unheard of and ridiculous. That would never happen. Because being the firstborn in this culture came with so many rights and privileges. It was the firstborn who would be the next patriarch of the family. When the father died, it was the firstborn who would rule over the rest of the family. It was the firstborn who would receive the, the double share of the inheritance and all the physical wealth and possessions that the family had. What tended to happen was if, the, if there were five children in this family, the inheritance would be split six ways and the firstborn would receive a double share. So if there's only two children in this family, the inheritance gets split three ways and the firstborn gets twice as much as the secondborn. Even more significant when you're a twin and you've come out holding your brother's heel to only receive half as much as what the brother would receive. Being the firstborn was so significant. But it's even more significant than that in the case of Esau and Jacob. Because in the case of Esau and Jacob, not only did the firstborn stand to inherit the physical inheritance, the firstborn stood to inherit the promise of God. The covenant promise that through his line the world would be blessed. Huge stakes. And Jacob and Esau are born. And then we see that God says, the older will serve the younger. And as we look at what they're, they're born here, Esau comes out and it says that he came out all red and covered in hair. Which is really weird. <laughs> like, I mean, it says literally that Esau came out of the womb and his body was covered in hair, like a fur coat. So that it looks like he was wearing a fur. It's like a little bear coming out of the womb. Like, imagine how disturbing that would be. You're not expecting this to happen. You're pregnant. You're about to give birth. Traumatic experience already. And then you give birth and you've given birth to a little baby bear. Like, how traumatic that would be. So the baby comes out covered in hair and they name him Esau because Esau sounds like the Hebrew word for hair. So then he comes out and then it's even weirder because he comes out with another baby clutching at his heel. And the baby grabs his heel and they call him Jacob because Jacob means clutches at the heel or it means he cheats. But what's really interesting about the name Jacob is that it sounds like the Hebrew word for deceiver. And so we see that right from the beginning of their stories, Jacob and Esau have this conflict between them. And we see that right from the beginning, Jacob has been named the deceiver and he lives up to his name throughout the rest of his life. But right at the, right at the beginning, right from within the womb, as they smash against each other, Jacob and Esau have this conflict. And then Jacob cheats his brother, even in the way out of the womb, by you know, catching a lift out of the womb, by grabbing onto his heel. Conflict right from the beginning. But we also see that right from the start, God had a plan for Jacob to rule over Esau. And it's interesting because in this story, we get told nothing about their childhood, but we just jump straight forward to the next significant moment in their lives. And so we're going to read that from verse 27. It said, The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Well, Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. 
but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he's also called Edom, because Edom sounds like the word red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And so we get the kind of the first picture of Jacob living up to his name as the deceiver here. And you know, Esau comes in from the field and he's just absolutely exhausted. So I don't know if you've ever been at the point where you felt so exhausted that you like, felt like you're about to die, like the most exhausted you've ever been. I remember for me, the most exhausted I've ever been was when I did Tough Mudder, which is a really long obstacle course, which is very out of character for me because I really hate running um, and I never run. But I did this course, which is like a half marathon and I finished and I was absolutely exhausted. I've never been so exhausted in my life. And all I wanted to do was just sit down and rest and eat, have something to eat. That's all I wanted. But when you finish Tough Mudder, they don't give you anything to eat. They just give you a VB and they tell you, this is for your hard-earned thirst. And you get to drink it. And it was not satisfying, I can tell you that. But I drank the VB, but all I really wanted was a meal. And Esau was kind of in this boat, right, where he's been out you know, hunting the whole time. He's come back. He's absolutely shattered. He just wants something to eat. And he asks Jacob for some of his stew. And then Jacob responds to him. And Jacob, instead of just saying, yeah, sure, bro, you can have some, you can have some stew. It's lentil. You'll love it. Like, or instead of saying, no, you actually can't have some of my stew. It's not ready yet. Or even just wait a little bit. He just says, sell me your birthright now. Ridiculous thing to say, right? When you, when you understand the significance of what the birthright entailed, when you understand how important it was that the firstborn receives the birthright, wealth, inheritance, name, you know, ruling the family, and also the covenant promise of God, what a ridiculous thing for Jacob to say. Sell me your birthright now. And Esau responds and he's like, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? You know, which that makes sense, right? Like that makes sense if Esau is legitimately about to die. His birthright has no use to him. But I can't help but think here that Esau... He's not really about to die. I think he's exaggerating a little bit. He's like, Esau's a bit of a millennial before his time. He's like, I'm literally dying. I need some food. Like, give me some food. I think that's what he's ha- what's, what's happening here. He's not literally dying. But Jacob doesn't let up. And he says, no, sell me your birthright now. He's like, I just need mood. He's like, sell it to me now. Swear it. And as you read this, you kind of get the sense from Jacob that there's really this air of kind of like premeditation here. Like he's planned this. He knew what he was going to do. And he's just waited for an opportunity to cheat Esau out of his birthright. And then he comes in exhausted. He sees his opportunity. He takes it, deceives, manipulates, capitalizes on Esau's weakness and steals the birthright from him. And Esau eats it and he gets up and goes. And as I read this, I found it hard not to sympathize with Esau a little bit. I feel like he's been cheated. I mean, he was genuinely exhausted, even if he wasn't dying. He did need to eat. He was desperate. What other choice did he have? He got manipulated. I mean, it would be easy for us to think that. It'd be easy for us to just lay the blame all on Jacob, the manipulator, the deceiver, and let Esau off the hook. But the Bible doesn't actually give us that option. We can't just let Esau off the hook so easily. The author of the Hebrews talks about this very story, and he says this in chapter 12. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he, deceived, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This passage, the author of Hebrews condemns Esau for what he did. He condemns him for selling his birthright, and he calls him immoral and unholy. The author uses Esau as an example of someone who gave up the long-term blessing of God for short-term satisfaction. This letter, Hebrews, was probably written uh, in the context of, and this author is probably writing to Jewish Christians who were facing temptation from outside the church to revert back to Judaism. And he's writing to them and he's saying, no, don't give in the long-term blessing of God. Remember what he's promised you. Don't take the easier way out just to avoid a bit of persecution and jump back to Judaism. Don't give up the long-term blessing of God for short-term satisfaction. And he uses Esau as an example of what not to do. And we've kind of all been in that sort of experience, haven't we, where we've you know, been tempted to, to give in to some sort of temptation rather than taking the long-term option, which we know is better. This happens to me every day I drive home from work. About half time, halfway on my trip home from work, I come up to a Macca's, and I see it in the distance, and I just really want to get some nuggets because I love nuggets. So I want to come home, and I get some nuggets, and every time I'm like, damn, nuggets, tempting. But I always think... No, I should really just wait until I get home and then I can cook something that will actually be satisfying and will fill me up and I won't feel terrible afterwards. But every time I, I give in and get the nuggets, I hate myself afterwards and I feel disgusting. And I'm like, I should have just waited until I ate something with a bit of sustenance. You know, giving up some long-term benefits of some short-term satisfaction, which we actually do all the time. But that's what Esau has done here on something far more significant. Gave up God's blessing for immediate relief for one, for one meal. He gave up the covenant promise of God for lentil stew. He knew what it was. He knew the promise of God. He knew the significance of the birthright. He knew the significance of what God had said, that through the whole world his descendants would be blessed, and he gave it up. And how often do we do the same thing? How often do we forget the long-term promise that God has promised us, what he has blessed us with, and give it up for something short-term? short-term satisfaction and temptation? How often do we forget that God has promised us complete satisfaction, complete joy, complete fulfillment in the new creation, but we give it up for the pleasures of now? How often do we you know, take the easy way out when it comes to our jobs, when we get offered a way to cheat or deceive or do something without integrity rather than looking forward to the promise of God? How often do we think about the, the immediate temptation when we're choosing a life partner rather than finding someone who is godly and will guide you closer to Jesus, how often do we give that up for something that's easy and satisfactory for the moment? How often do we give up God's long-term blessing for the satisfaction of now? Because the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't be like Esau. Remember what God has promised you. So as we look at this, we can see that Esau isn't innocent in the sacrifice of his birthright. Sure, Jacob manipulated him, but Esau isn't innocent. He didn't appreciate the amazing blessing that, of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to him. But then the question we do have to ask now is, even if Esau is also guilty in this, does that excuse the way that Jacob acted? Does it excuse his manipulation and his deception? And the answer's got to be no, of course not. It doesn't excuse his deception. So why is it okay? What's happening here? So we've got to you know, explore a little bit further if we're going to see the answer to that question. And Paul talks about this again. In the book of Romans, he talks about it in verse, sorry, in chapter 9, starting at verse 10. He says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul refers to this story of Jacob and Esau when he's talking about God's purposes in those whom he will choose to save. And he says that God chose Jacob over Esau when they're in the womb. And he goes out of his way to say that it wasn't based on any merit, that they, anything that they had done or anything that they would do. But God chose Jacob over Esau in the womb. And it uses such strong language. It says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we read that and we think, that is so brutal. How could God say that he hates someone that he created? How could he say that? But I think it's important for us to understand that when this says hate, it's not using the word hate in the same way that we tend to use it today, as though God just despised everything about Esau. This is being used as a comparison to show how amazing it is that God chose Jacob. Jesus does a similar thing uh, in one of the Gospels where he says, you know, hate your father and mother if you want to follow me. He's not asking us to hate our parents, but he's saying that compared to how we love and compared to our obedience to Jesus, it should look like hate. That's how much we should love. Not saying we should hate, but how much we should love. It's the same thing here. We're supposed to look at this and think about the reality that God chose Jacob and how amazing that is. But it does leave us with the reality that in the womb, Jacob was chosen and Esau wasn't. It wasn't based on any work that either of them had done. And yet God still condemns Esau for the sacrifice of his birthright. And what we see here is this real tension that we get so many times in the scriptures and that tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because in one sense, Esau never really had the opportunity to accept his birthright because God had chosen Jacob before he was born. Yet on the other hand, he's still condemned for his sin. He's still condemned for sacrificing it. And on the other hand, Jacob manipulates and deceives his way into getting the blessing, but God still gives it to him because he'd chosen him beforehand. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. God's choice is not about the merit of the people chosen. That's what we see in this picture here. God chose Jacob before he was born to be the one to inherit the blessing. God didn't choose Esau. And what uh, the temptation for us to do is to focus on the sinfulness of Jacob here. But the, the Genesis account in this story actually wants us to focus on something else. And what it wants us to focus on is the faithfulness of God. It wants us to focus on the fact that God is faithful to his covenant promises despite the sinfulness of his chosen people. Despite their sin and despite their brokenness, Genesis portrays a God who has said that he would do something and continues to go and do it despite the people. That's the picture we're presented of God. And what we see when we look through Genesis and what we see when we look throughout the whole of the scriptures is that the Bible never tries to whitewash its heroes. It never tries to present them in a more positive light than they deserve. It never tries to hide their failures or their sin. But so often the Bible presents its heroes and it speaks about their sin in such candid and explicit ways. Noah becomes a drunk. Abraham tries to speed up the promise of God and sleeps with his servant in order to get a son. Isaac has, shows favoritism and he deceives the king of the Philistines. Jacob deceives and manipulates his brother. Yet despite all of their sinfulness, God's promises and his covenant remain. 
God remains faithful despite the sin of the people and he promises that he would bless the whole earth and he does. God, God's choice of his people is not based on anything they've done, not based on their merit, but on his faithfulness. And I want to say that the same is true today. The story of God has never been about the merit of the one chosen, but the grace of the one who chooses. The story of God has never been about the merit of the one chosen, but the grace of the one who chooses. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the promise of His will. And in the next chapter, He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Do you hear what Paul said? That God chose you before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a second. Before anything ever existed, God chose to set his affection on you. God chose to pour out his favor on you. How amazing is that? Before he created anything. And what Ephesians is so clear in telling us is that it was not based on anything that we'd done. It's not as though God looked forward in history and saw the good works that you would do and said, yes, that person is worth choosing. Not that. He didn't choose us based on our merit or anything we'd done or would do, but because of his grace. Through Jesus. So how shall we respond to all of this? What does that mean for us? Well, I think there's a couple of things and a couple of ways that we need to respond when we hear about God's choice and his sovereign mercy and grace in choosing us. And I think the first thing that we need to respond by doing is with worship. We've got to respond in thankfulness and in joy that God chose to set his affection on us. That God chose, chose us before the foundation of the world. Before I just can't get over that. Before the world was created, God chose to love us. How amazing is that? We need to respond in worship, not based on anything we've done. What does that mean? It means that we don't have to try and earn God's blessing. It means we don't have to try and manipulate it and deceive to get it like Jacob did. But it's just poured out upon us freely as a gift. Grace of God in his mercy poured out upon us. Inheritance and blessing and complete satisfaction and perfection in the future poured out upon us by his grace, not because of anything we've done. That's got to lead us to worship. We can have assurance about the blessing that we've received because it isn't about what we do. We don't have to worry about our failings and our sin because God has chosen to bless us despite our actions. But in saying that, I realize it's not actually as simple as that for many of us. While it's amazing, this, this blessing of salvation, what God has done, that he's chosen us, I mean, there is the inevitable reality that not everyone is chosen. God chose Jacob in the womb. He didn't choose Esau. And that raises the question for us, is that unfair? Is God unfair about the way that he's gone about salvation? Is it unjust? I mean, if it's, based, if it's not based on, on merit, then why would God choose one and not the other? And I understand these feelings, and I understand, um, I've, and I've wrestled with this, that it, it comes from a feeling and a desire for love and justice and equality for, for everyone. It feels unfair, but the reality is, is that God's choice in salvation isn't fair. The reality is that God choice isn't fair, but not for the reasons that we think. Because God's choice isn't fair because there is not one person that deserves to be saved. 
There's not one person that deserves this blessing that God has poured out on us. I mean, Esau wasn't chosen, but he still sinned and he's responsible for his sin. He's responsible for giving up the blessing of God. And the way that the Bible uh, pictures us is in the same boat as Esau. We've all sinned and given away the blessing that we could have received. None of us deserve the blessing of God. A few years ago, uh, just after Sarah and I had got married, we were blessed enough to have two cars um, for our first year of marriage, which was a real blessing. Um, but with our two cars, um, we had this really terrible week where we kind of lost both of our cars. One was Sarah was in an accident and that car got written off. And then my car was a really old Corolla that had been like already written off once and then revived and then the brakes stopped working. So we had to get rid of that car as well for a time. Uh, it's actually fixed again. We're still driving it. So who knows how long that's going to last. But um, we had these two cars and they both stopped working in the same week. And we were without a car and we both needed to travel quite a long distance to get to work in opposite directions each day. So we weren't really sure what we were going to do. And then I was talking to one of my mentors at the time and uh, my mentor just offered for us to borrow one of their cars for a while. And so he gave us this car and it was just this really, really nice BMW. And like, I'm not a car person at all. Like, I don't, I don't understand cars or they don't fire me up like some people. But even I was like, damn, this is a nice car. Like, and I got to go around driving this really nice BMW for a couple of, mo- for a couple of months. Uh, and, you know, the first few times I drove it, I was like, this is so amazing. It's so much better than my car. I really appreciate it. I was so thankful um, that our mentor had lended it to us. But before long, I stopped thinking about that. And before long, I stopped thinking about the gift that he'd given me. And I just started to, you know, think that it was my car. Like, it had been a couple of months. I'd been driving around in it. I didn't think about it every time I got in. So when I drove, I was like, yeah, this is my car. It's awesome. Completely forgot about the fact that he let us borrow it. And then it didn't take long before, you know, after a couple of months, they needed their car back. And so he asked for the car back. And as he asked for it back, I actually started to feel a little bit annoyed. I was like, why why are you taking my car? Like, I, I actually felt annoyed that he was taking it back. And then I had to check myself and be like, oh my goodness, like he, he gave this to me out of the goodness of his own heart. Like I, I did not deserve this. And I'd just forgotten that it was a gift and I started treating it as though it was mine. And I was reflecting on that during the week and I was thinking, wow, how often do I do that when it comes to my salvation? Like I've been a Christian for a long time and how often do I lose the, the awe and the joy at God's salvation of me? How often do I forget that he chose me and I didn't deserve it at all? I didn't deserve one you know, inch of blessing, but he chose to pour out his son on me and pour out all the blessings and inheritance that comes with that. How amazing is that? But if we, you know, the more we talk about it, it can just become so easy for us to to forget the miracle that that is, the miracle of God's choice, that he chose to pour his affection on you before the foundation of the world, that you did nothing to deserve it, but God just poured it out on you, poured it out on me. It's so easy for us to forget. And we have this question of, you know, the unfairness of God's choice. But I think if, there, if there's one thing that is truly unfair about God's choice in salvation, is that the innocent one had to suffer for us to be saved. If there is anything unfair about God's choice, it's that the innocent one, the only one who didn't deserve to be punished, the only one who did deserve to be chosen, was tortured and killed so that we could have a relationship with God. What could be more unfair than the cross? But praise God that it is. Praise God that it is unfair. Because if we got what was fair, I can guarantee that we wouldn't want it. Praise God for his choice. 
When we understand where we stood before God and where we stand now, we can't help but respond in worship and praise and thanksgiving. We can't help but fall on our knees, bow down before God and just worship Him in thanks. Thank you, Lord. I think the, the second thing that this story should teach us is that God chooses to use broken people for His work. God chooses to use those who are broken and those who are sinful uh, and those who don't you know, deserve to be used. What we see through this, this story is that despite Jacob's sin, despite Abraham's sin, despite Isaac's sin, God still chooses to use them and his purposes are still completed despite their sin. And that is that's still true today. God still chooses to use those who are broken and those who are sinful for his work. What does that mean for us? It means that you don't have to be perfect before God will use you. You don't have to fix all of your sin before God can use you for his purposes. God wants to use you for his work. In fact, God has promised that he would use you for his work. He's given you his spirit in you so you can do that. You don't have to be perfect. How amazing is that? God's chosen to use us for his work despite our sin and despite our brokenness. And that doesn't mean that you know, where our sin is now, is now validated. It doesn't make our sin okay. He calls us to put our sin to death. I mean, we, all we have to do is look at the story of Jacob to see the damage that sin does. This whole story, as we'll see over the next few weeks, is a story of conflict and of damage caused by sin. Family conflict, messy relationships, murder, so many you know, disgraceful and damaging things because of sin. God still wants us to put our sin to death, but it doesn't stop him using us now, just like it didn't stop him using Jacob back then. So as we finish up, I really want us to reflect on those two things. Reflect on the fact that God has poured out his blessing and his favor and his grace on you and that you did nothing to deserve it. Let let that lead us to worship. And also let me challenge you to think about, you know, where is God using you? Have you been holding back because you felt too sinful or too broken to be used? Because the truth of the gospel is that God wants to use you and he's promised that he will. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to respond in a few ways. So why don't we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us. Wow, Lord, thank you so much that you chose to pour out your mercy upon us and your favor. Lord, we thank you so much that you chose us before anything in this world was created, that you had a plan that your plan has never changed and it never will, Lord. We thank you so much for that. Lord, lead us to hearts of worship. Help us to to seek after you with everything that we have. Lord, help us to seek after you and, and Lord, we are willing to be used by you. Thank you that you use us despite our sin and despite our brokenness, Lord. Give us hearts that are willing to seek after you in all things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.